0: What's going on, y'all? This is Zach Corporate. I hope that your MOK Day weekend was restful and restorative and reflective. I know for me, um, I spent most of the weekend really just hanging out with Emery and Candace and then thinking a lot about the legacy of Dr. King and the work that he did. And frankly, how hated he was in his time. You know, it's easy to forget that Gallup polls had him trending at almost like 75 percent disapproval um, from uh, the majority of white Americans. Uh, Because of his stances on the economy, on race and on the Vietnam War. And when you think about the fact that um, the FBI deemed him a terrorist, um, that he was being, you know, monitored and watched at all parts and points of the day, um, that he was being slandered and uh, maligned in the media. um, Frankly, that the same type of graphics and things that we see about Black Lives Matter and Colin Kaepernick and and things of that nature were. I'm very, very similar to Dr. King and the way that he was treated and and spoken about. You know, you think about the fact that, frankly, (laughs) all of black civil rights heroes, there's not one black civil rights leader that you can name that was not seen as a terrorist in their day as an enemy of the state. All of them, all of them were. And it makes you then question, Okay, so then if you're in a role of diversity, equity, inclusion, you're really trying to fight for those same ideals and principles. If you're not making the majority uncomfortable, you're probably not doing the work that you think you're doing or that you at least claim that you're doing. I'm I'm seeing more and more folks make posts about the fact that the capital should have been is a wake up call. We have a long ways to go. Let me tell you something. If the capital insurrection is your only signal or your main signal that we have quote unquote, a long ways to go, you have disqualified yourself from being in this DEI space. Okay. Um, We've had several instances, um, points of evidence uh, over the last several decades, but certainly over the last four years that we uh, continue to come towards um, a very, very, very harsh collision. And I'm frankly anxious about that because I don't see these things letting up. And frankly, I don't see these things letting up because I have yet to see a collective understanding and call to true uh, education on the depths and challenges of white supremacy. Right. We're really, really good and adept at creating a lot of noise when the big things happen, quote unquote, the big things, but not necessarily at recognizing patterns and behaviors that create these big things. Right. Like there's an environment that had to fester for this to happen. And I need some of you to do your learning in private. It's insulting to the black and brown folks that you claim your work is for to write this content. And I don't know if you're really writing it for the black and brown people you're trying to serve or if you're just trying to write it for your other like white constituents so they can pat you on the back. Y'all are kind of having like your own little group thing situation. But for the black professionals in general and certainly the black and brown professionals, Uh, In the DEI space, your words are insulting and your lack of growth and maturity and awareness in this season is exhausting. So just a point of advice and feedback from one DEI professional to you listening to this. Do your learning in private. If this was a wake up call for you, then you have a long way to go to use your language back to you. (laughs) And you need to do that. Um, You need to learn those things outside of posting on LinkedIn and on Twitter Um, And using it to, like, make yourself look better. It's really gross. So stop. With all that being said, I'm really excited about the guest that we're going to have today. Uh, Dr. Brian Williams. Dr. Brian Williams is a friend of uh, the show. Thankful that he was able to make the time to come on. We actually had this conversation yesterday on MLK Day. We talked a little bit about, like, you know, just how he's been doing, how busy he's been, his podcast, his book that's coming out. And then we really circled back as a veteran. We talked about his perspective on the uh, insurrection at the Capitol. And we talked a a good bit about COVID-19. So, look, I don't want to give all the sauce away. I'm giving you kind of like an overview, but I don't want to give no more. okay? Um, before we get into that interview with Dr. Brian Williams, we're going to tap in with Tristan. See you soon.
1: What's going on Living Corporate? It's Tristan and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. This week let's discuss the top five jobs in demand for 2021. Over the last year we've seen the pandemic decimate whole industries and spark the need for candidates in new and expanding ones. This can be a confusing time for many job seekers trying to figure out where to focus their energy. LinkedIn News senior editor Andrew Seaman did some research and analysis to find out which jobs are currently in demand. And I wanted to take some time to discuss the top five. First, are professionals on the front line of e-commerce. During quarantine, there was an increased need for people who helped get products to the stores and into the customers' hands. According to LinkedIn, hiring for roles like driver, supply chain associate, package handler, and personal shopper grew 73% year over year. The second is loan and mortgage experts. Interest rates have been historically low. In combination with the Paycheck Protection Program, this has led to a 59% increase in hiring for roles like underwriter, mortgage loan officer, escrow officer, and loan closer. The third is healthcare support staff. Not only did the pandemic increase the need for doctors and nurses, but it also increased the need for people who support those healthcare professionals, such as healthcare assistants, pharmacy technicians, dental assistants, and home health aides. Hiring for these types of roles has increased by 34% since 2019. The fourth is business development and sales professionals. While some jobs were lost due to the uncertain economy, others were added that could help the bottom line, including roles like sales consultant, sales operations assistant, inbound sales specialists, and strategic advisors. Hiring for these type of positions increased by 45% from 2019 to 2020. The fifth is experts in workplace diversity. We know the uprisings last spring caused companies, large and small, to reassess their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. This has led to a 90% increase in hiring for roles such as diversity manager, diversity officer, head of diversity, and diversity coordinator. LinkedIn's list includes a total of the top 15 jobs on the rise right now. Make sure to check out the link in the show notes to see the other 10 they listed. Whether you're looking to get back into the workforce or want to invest your talents in a new area, hopefully this data helps you find an available path in confusing times. Thanks for tapping back in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may help others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash Tristan. That's l y forward slash T-A-P-I-N-T-R-I-S-T-A-N. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Dr. Williams,
0: welcome to the show. Uh, Glad to have you back. It's good to hear from you.
2: Zach, I appreciate the invitation to, to come back. I really enjoy your show I've been following it. And I uh, want to commend you on the work that you're doing to keep this discussion moving on so many different fronts. So keep it up, brother.
0: Well, I appreciate it. And also happy MLK Day to you.
2: Same same to you. It's, uh, it's quite a time we are in, right? His message is still resonating decades after his assassination. And it's more important nowadays than ever, it seems.
0: You know and to that end like let's get right into it how did you feel um as you were you know getting the news and you're seeing all this stuff going on uh, in the media about the uh, the insurrection at the capitol
2: yeah january 6th i had a, a complexity of emotions about that entire event and it was wonderful because i was actually working that day when this was going on so i didn't get a chance to stop and sit in front of the television and watch this unfold real time. I got bits and pieces as it occurred. Uh, but anger was part of that. Uh, embarrassment for our country that this is happening. Uh, disgust with our leadership that allowed this to happen. And concern knowing that that doesn't just end right then, right, that, that could have been much worse. And we know that this will probably continue Um, at least for the foreseeable future, we don't know what is going to happen next. So I couldn't pin down just one emotion. It's just looking at that going, wow, disbelief, (laughs) anger, sadness, embarrassment. Like how did it come to this in America? And I I know how, but still the reality of seeing it unfold with that sort of uh, violence at our nation's capital is still somewhat difficult to grasp.
0: Yeah. You know, and I know that you've come on in the past and we've talked a little bit about your journey and your work, um, your community work to uh, create safer communities by building coalitions with the police. I'm curious about when you talk about the complexity of emotions, considering your story and, and the work that you've done and the work that you continue to lead is how did you feel when you saw reports and video of, Police coordinating with the insurrectionists and um, retired police and active duty police and military folks being engaged in the actual insurrection acts themselves.
2: I was not surprised by that, uh, but I also need to add that you know, I'm a, I'm a military veteran myself, my dad is a career military veteran, 23 years, so I grew up watching my father put on his uniform every day and go to work in service of his country. I myself chose to follow in his footsteps and do the same thing. So I, I have this respect for what it means to to make sacrifices to serve a greater good and a greater cause, especially knowing that in, in this country, those aren't always reciprocated to right we, we, we know that there's no there's no doubt about that so it is not a, a binary thing for me there's a lot of nuance in all of this for me and with my work that I've done with police over the past four or five years uh, I, I, there's no doubt that 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 sort of white supremacist element exists within law enforcement uh, if we understand the history of law enforcement in this country we cannot ignore that and the problem is we don't We like a lot of people still don't talk truthfully about that history. So to see those images and to know the reports are coming out, no surprise at all. And what I hope is that people that continue to deny that or ignore it, step up. Like we need to really do some work to eliminate hate, intolerance, white supremacy in all of our institutions. And when you know, black people benefit in this country. Everyone benefits. It's not a zero sum game, as if you have to give up something, to benefit of someone else. And that those are the ideals. Those are the professed ideals of this country. That's the oath which I I swore to serve, and uh, I believe that's possible. We have a, we have a ways to go. And that's it's not going to be an easy road.
0: And you know. You know, as we think about like a long way to go and we talk about just like different treatment. Right. So, you know, you're looking on the news and you're seeing, you know, cont- people continue to play or say that make the state, which is true. Right. And so I'm not trying to be impatient about it, but it's like, OK, yes, we know this is like if Black Lives Matter were to have stormed the Capitol in that way, we know it would have been like a massacre. Uh, we We see even in like, you know, there's been now videos coming out about um you know the fbi arresting the folks who are participating in the insurrection and then saying hey look you'll be out by lunch it's okay don't worry about it we got you um we see the judges um letting folks go like not 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 you know letting them go on bail right giving them a lot of leeway and grace to roam the streets even though they are actively looking to overthrow the government um that inequality and i mean just difference and 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 inequity in treatment um, i think it continues as we think about uh, this COVID vaccine. First of all, before we get into like the distribution of the vaccine and and some of the reports that are coming out around that, uh, as you compare populations in terms of who's receiving the vaccine, I want to talk a little bit about like Black Americans' reluctance to actually take the vaccine in general. Um, you know, do you think that we in our public discourse are talking enough about the reasons why Black Americans are so reluctant to take the vaccine in terms of like the history of uh, health inequities and and mistreatment, malpractice and abuse. Do you think we're effectively discussing the topic?
2: As far as the reluctance among Black Americans and the inequalities that we're seeing with COVID nineteen, there is a, a, abysmal lack of education about the history that led us to the point we are now. It's lack of education in our, just on our public schools. Lack of education within the medical community where I work, and. So no, we are not talking about it. And I've actually put together a course I'll be teaching at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago starting this spring that will walk students through this, right? And I'm also writing a book right now that's going to talk about this. So I want to add something to this educational discussion. And before we get back on that, Zach, I hope you don't mind going back to this issue about the police and the insurrection and what you mentioned about people being released early. Yeah. That, no. We can use soft terms about how that's unequal treatment and the inequalities, but we can be strong. Like that is that is the manifestation of white supremacy, systemic racism, the hypocrisy of the criminal justice system, right? Um, but it's not that we, it's something we can't we cannot fix if we are honest about what that is. Like we know that if there was a Black Lives Matter protest, that would have ended up much differently there would have been more dead bodies. We know that people would not be getting out of, out of jail so easily right now. Uh, we know that the way it would have been presented in the press, uh, in the media would have been much harsher. And, you know, I'm actually surprised to hear that we talk about them as being treasonous and traitors and insurrectionists and using a lot of tougher terms, but what, what they did and what they represented than has been done in the past. So from a criminal justice standpoint, that's being laid bare as well, as in, and how we treat these people who went armed to the teeth with plans to kill, kidnap our elected officials in the nation's capital with an attempt to overthrow the government. Like, we cannot minimize what that means. Now, pivoting back to health care, which, which you asked about as far as. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> Covid, I had to get off my chest, Zach. I'm sorry, I had to get off my chest.
0: No, no, it's 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 fair. So, the, and this is the thing. Um, to your point around you being a military veteran, there's something to be said about that. I have a couple of friends, and I have, of course I have family members, like most Black folks do, who are military veterans, and many of them, it 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 strikes a different chord for them. Like the right. the the actions on that day, it just strikes a very unique, uniquely infuriating and just like painful chord. So I know I appreciate that,
2: right. Now, as far as the COVID disparities and we're talking about reluctance within a Black community to get the, the vaccine, there is a long history of exploitation of Black people by the medical establishment for experimentation. Uh, we, you know, we may know about Tuskegee, one of the most famous uh, examples of that sort of exploitation. That's really just a tip of the iceberg of what else has gone on? You know, just one example is the doctor that's known as the father of modern gynecology. He uh, developed some of the or some of the most um, widely used surgical procedures for women with vaginal cervical issues, but he did this on enslaved women without anesthetic against their will. So we're talking about women that are being held down. Uh, to have their genitals mutilated so this individual can perfect this technique, which you would later do on white women with like right? uh, there, there were statues by the country of him until recently that would never take taken down. That's one example. Recently, up until the, the 80s, Zach, they were still forcefully sterilizing young black women to prevent them from having children. Uh, it's been known as the Mississippi appendectomy. That's a colloquial term for it. Uh, but women are being sterilized without their knowledge or, uh, or against their will up until the 80s. So that's in my lifetime. And these are just two examples beyond Tuskegee of how blacks have been exploited or black people have been exploited for medical exploitation. So when you come out and say, okay, there's this disease that's been killing black people at a at a rate that's higher than their uh, population percentage. Now we have this vaccine that was seemingly developed overnight that we're going to get to everybody. Is it too much to believe that, you know what, I'm not so sure <laughs> that what you're doing is in my best interest? Because we've heard this story before. So it is completely understandable that there's reluctance. And what that means is that the messaging and the education has to be uh specific to the patient populations that we are trying to to save. And if we look through this, look at this through the lens of health equity and racial equity, then we recognize that how we message, who we message, when we message, must be unique. And we must put a focus on vulnerable patient populations who do not have ready access to health care who do make up the bulk or essential workers force who are put in harm's way every single day, who may not have the money or the transportation to get to the vaccination sites. There's a whole spectrum of issues that we need to consider. And that takes leadership from the very top to, to make that happen.
0: You know, I wanna shout out the Black Stocks because they've been tweeting a lot and just talking a lot about, um, you know, inequities in healthcare and the impact of COVID-19 on communities and race, you know, and I'm I'm, I'm trying to um, get your perspective on why these reports continue out around the fact that um, despite the fact that COVID-19 continues to kill black and brown communities, disproportionate to white communities, there still seems to be a delay or like they still seem to be receiving the vaccine at lower rates. Is that that can't be all because of of uh, reluctance from black and brown communities, like what are the other factors that are causing the c- communities hit hardest by COVID-19 to have um, the vaccine distributed at least to them?
2: Oh yeah, that is absolutely true. I'm glad you said that. It'll be a mistake to blame black and brown communities for their own demise, right? For their own lack of vaccination. Uh, there's reports coming out right now across the country of communities where- if you look at the maps of who has the highest infection rates, and who has the highest death rates from COVID, and then look at the maps of who's getting the vaccinations first, the wealthy neighborhoods are getting vaccinated first, while the uh, less wealthy neighborhoods, which are primarily black and brown communities, are the ones that are not getting vaccinated and the ones that are still dying. So, right there is a graphic representation of how wealth equals health, right? If you live in the wealthy zip codes, you have the access. You probably have a primary care physician. You probably have a car. to can drive to a site. If there's not a site near, you can drive somewhere further away where there are other what people call social determinants of health with what I call structural determinants of health because this is a manifestation of structural racism that um, make it more challenging to, to get the vaccine. So it's not just the reluctance to get the vaccine. That's just one part of it. There are also all these other issues that make it more difficult to get the vaccine, where there's lack of PCP, lack of um, ready access to a facility, lack of a vaccine site, being put somewhere near where you live. All these things add up, which is why leadership <laughs> must look at this through the lens of health equity, and racial equity, and recognize that we have these historically marginalized and segregated neighborhoods that are also suffering the greatest infections and death from COVID. Therefore, we must make an effort to get the medication off the shelves into their arms, is one, but also we, and I include myself in that as a medical professional, have to prove that, look, not only should you trust us, but we are trustworthy. We are here to ensure that you get healthy, but also if you do get sick, we, we, will, we will not abandon you. So it's a matter of being trustworthy as well.
0: Dr. Williams, I know um, that you've taken the time and I appreciate you being on the show. Before we let you go, would you like to talk a little bit about the book that you're working on and any other project that you're excited about in 2021?
2: Yeah, there's two projects that I'm very excited about. First is this course I've developed to teach at the Harris School of Public Policy at University of Chicago, which will, so if you look at race, violence, and medicine, which is what I what I talk a lot about, um, but it will be, of course, taught the lens of a trauma surgeon myself, uh, using my experience at some of the busiest trauma centers in the country, and I specifically designed it to speak to non healthcare uh, students. So these are grad students that are pursuing public policy degrees, and I did this because. These issues that you and I discussed today, they're they are huge issues that have a lot of intersecting parts, and it is beyond the realm of us in healthcare to solve those. So I want to inspire a generation of non-healthcare professionals to think about how can they be a part of these solutions for health inequality, gun violence, uh, racial inequity in healthcare. What can they do with their expertise? So that starts in, in the spring, and in the spring, Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. My second big project, I've been working on this book, which is a memoir called Race, Violence, and Medicine. And polishing my proposal right now, my my literary agent has been, she has pretty high standards, which I enjoy uh, and I respect. So we're working on that and soon we'll be sending it out to editors and publishing houses to see if someone wants to work with me to get the manuscript in its final polished form. So hopefully it'll be you know published you know, next year sometime. The publishing uh timeline is is not fast. I don't know if you published a book ever exactly but it's not not a fast uh, process.
0: I haven't but um but I did field some offers last year and yeah, yeah. it's it yes and it it's a while. Right. So they were like, look, you know, you submitted by the spring. It'll be ready by next fall. I was like, Oof, OK. <laughs>
2: yeah, but I'm going to keep people up. You know, go to my website, com. I'm going to keep people updated there about how, the, how, how things are progressing um, with, with the process. And I'll keep my I'll keep my, my podcast going as I can. Uh, it's been a little bit sporadic now because of work and other things, but. I'm delayed but i'm
0: not but i'm not off the air for good <laughs> i mean well i mean i mean between all the work that you're doing in your community as well as so, uh you know having conversations and driving education around COVID 19 vaccine and i mean you have your, your hands are super full look dr williams can't thank you enough for being on the show um definitely consider you a friend of uh so you, you are, you're you're friend of mine but you're also a friend of living corporate i look forward to having you back uh, as that book gets closer to publish Hit us up. You know you, you know where to find us. We're going to um, make sure we got you. We take care of you, okay?
2: All right, Zach. I'm happy to come back anytime. Stay safe. Stay healthy, my friend.
0: All right, y'all. Look, that's uh, Living Corporate. Look, I'm so thankful, so glad that you're still rocking with us. I pray that your 2021 is off to a, a good start. I know we've had plenty of distractions, chaos, heartbreak, and loss already. But you know I'm hopeful that this year will be better than our last. And listen, there's plenty of ways to support us, right? The first way you can support us is just by telling a friend about us, telling your coworker, telling your supervisor, telling the family member, letting people know that we're out here, right? Take the little share button on whatever player you're using, press the little share button, and then it's gonna be like you know share options, and then just you know press text or share it to your social medias, you know what I mean? Share it to your Black Planet, you know your Mahente your Zanga, you know, whatever, whatever you got going on, share it over to your TikTok, TikTok it. You know, what I'm I don't know. Listen, I'm I know I'm feeling old because I can't even I'm not a big TikToker. I know what TikTok is, but I'm not. You know what I mean? But share where you share is my point. Another way you can help us is by giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars and give us a review. It's a great way to let people know that we're out here, that we exist. And look, I'm telling you, you are helping the podcast and helping Living Corporate as an entire network more ways than, you know, by just giving us those five stars in review uh, until next time. It's been Zach. Catch y'all later. Love y'all. Peace.
1: Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown.